O Father, a dusty old piece of apocalyptic literature, does it have anything to say for survival in 2000 A.D.? Dear God, we must know. Teach us the truth. And may the truth set us free. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I have hesitated this morning taking you to one of the most dramatic pieces of apocalyptic literature in all of Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 9. I predict most of you have never gazed upon this truly dramatic scene, nor have you read this prophetic narrative. And I'll tell you why I've been hesitant. I'm going to be very candid with you. This particular piece is extremely in your face. By that I mean it is aggressively bold. It is going to, it is going to take you by the lapel if you have lapels today. Take you by the blouse if you're wearing a blouse and confront you. Confront you with a picture that we are just as, well, we would just as soon not have to contemplate. I want to assure you, you will get over it. In fact, it is imperative we all get over it. I believe with all my heart that if we continue to forget and ignore this particular dramatic scenario, we do so at the risk of our very souls. I've heard you turning there. The rest of you that haven't joined me, let's find the book of Ezekiel. Oh, you know where Isaiah is. If you can come across Isaiah, then it's Jeremiah, then Little Lamentations, then Ezekiel. Get to Daniel. It's just the book before. One short, compelling chapter. Chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. Let's begin right at the top. Verse 1. Ezekiel 9, verse 1. Then he cried in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, you executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Push the pause button right there. Let's hold it on verse 1. Hold it right here. There's no way we can understand this piece of heightened drama unless we are clear about the context in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is right there. If you... Just uh, would skim your fingers over chapter 8. We don't have time to do anything but a fleeting survey. Chapter 8, sixth year of the exile. Who's writing? Ezekiel's writing here. Who's Ezekiel? He's part of the creme de la creme of the, of the city of Jerusalem. You remember Nebuchadnezzar. What was the name of that uh, general of his? Nebuchadnezzar. He has besieged Jerusalem already in 600. This is around 592, 591 when this vision takes place. Ezekiel has been taken captive along with some of the elite, some of the leadership. Chapter 8 begins with Ezekiel in his home. It is obviously not a mansion. It's just a little exile home. But he's there with the elders of Judah. Some of the other captive elders. And I'm sure they're pining and moaning about the good old days when they were in Jerusalem. In the middle of that afternoon, tete-a-tete, there comes a moment where God reaches out. It's rather a, a, a dramatic moment, I would think, when... It says there in verse 3, chapter 8 now, chapter 8, verse 3, God reaches out and He grabs Ezekiel at, in vision. He grabs Ezekiel by a lock of his hair. Proof enough that men in the Old Testament had long hair. You would have a hard time getting your attention if you're a Gen Xer with a shaved head today. 
He grabs Ezekiel by his hair, this hand in verse 3, hoists him into the air. And you know, this happens to prophets. You, you, you are well aware of how the gift of prophecy works. You can be physically in a place and mentally, spiritually, emotionally be somewhere a thousand miles away. God's saying, okay, Ezekiel, you, wanna, you, you are languishing longing for the good old days back in Jerusalem. Let me tell you what's going on in the holy city. In fact, let me take you to church. I want to put you in the heart of the church that you no longer can worship in. And when he is set down, where is this? In verse 5 of chapter 8. When he is set down, God says, okay, boy. Well, that's actually calls him son of man in the Hebrew. Son of man, what do you see? Ezekiel says, well, you know, actually I see an image of jealousy. What is this image of jealousy? It simply is... is Anonymous. It's an anonymous code term. There is no name for this image, this idol. Obviously, a pagan god has been dragged from their surrounding neighbors. You know, isn't this something? God puts a community in the midst of the world. Why does He put a community of faith in the midst of a lost world? Because He is hoping against hope that this community of faith will be so passionate about Him that it will reflect to the fallen pagan culture around it. It will actually reflect the truth about God. So He said, I'm going to do something wonderful. I'm going to choose a people. He did that in in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to choose a people and I'm going to put them in the middle of a dark, fallen, lost civilization. And they will glow with their friendship with me, and the world will be drawn to me because they see the truth in the lives of these. Can you believe it? God puts this community of faith in the midst of all those pagan neighbors. I don't understand this. I mean, what do they do? They're supposed to be shining, witnessing to them. It's It's the exact antithesis. It's the opposite. The world is witnessing to the community of faith. And the world makes a bigger sale than the community of faith. Because the world has become like the community of faith. The community of faith begins to ape the world. And brings it right into its worship. Right into the bosom of its worship. This image of jealousy. All right, boy, son of man. Are you really thinking things are hunky-dory back at home? You haven't seen anything yet. Because listen to me, Ezekiel, it only gets worse. Three times in this single chapter, God will keep saying, it only gets worse. Take a look at this, Ezekiel. See that hole in the wall? There's a hole in the vision. Hole in the wall within the vision. In the temple. Crawl through that hole. Ezekiel goes crawling through that hole. Now he's in the inner sanctum of the temple. What do you see now? I see 70 men. And what are they doing, Ezekiel? Look here, what is this? Verse 10. I went in and I looked and... In fact, I'm going to read it. Verse 10. I went in and looked and their portrait on the wall... Ladies and gentlemen, this is the temple of the Holy God. Their portrait on the wall all around were all kinds of creeping things and loathsome animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 of the elders. The leadership, the leadership, hook, line, and sinker has swallowed the bait of a fallen culture and the leadership is bowing down to these creepy, loathsome whatevers painted on the wall of the temple. God is just shaking, shaking his head. He says, I don't understand this. Why do they not want me? Why? You think this is bad, Ezekiel? Go through the next door. Ezekiel, in vision, he's still sitting, the elders all around him in Babylon, but he's in vision and he's in Jerusalem. God says, go through the next door. He goes through the next door and a room full of women. Usually that would be kind of, you know, a happy moment if you were a man. A room full of women. Wow. But these are all women. Yep, women of the community of faith. Women of Israel. And you know what they're doing? They are sobbing. They are weeping. Ezekiel strains his ears. Why are they crying? What is so sad? They are weeping for the Babylonian god of fertility and vegetation, Tammuz. 
Because you see, in the Babylonian cycle, every spring, once the rains are over and the hot summer comes, Tammuz dies and he won't come alive again. How do you like that death-resurrection cycle within pagan culture? He won't come alive again until the rains come in the fall and then there's great rejoicing. Tammuz, by the way, has a lover. Her name is Ishtar, from whence comes our word Easter. The women are weeping. Tammuz, oh, Tammuz, come back, come back. We need fertility. God says, look it, don't be surprised at this. Don't be surprised. It only gets worse. Go through the next door. Not to leave the men undone, Ezekiel goes into the next room. And here they are, 25 men. We're not told who these 25 are, but if you take the high priest and the 24 heads of the Levitical courses, the priest courses that serve the temple, you got 25. 25 men. And do you know where they're bowed? Take a look at that. Do you know where they are bowed? That their backs, according to Ezekiel's vision here in chapter 8, their backs, what verse is this? This is towards the end of verse 16. Their backs are actually turned to God, to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, prostrating themselves to the sun toward the east. They are worship. Can you believe it? They are worshiping the sun itself. Baal worship. Ladies and gentlemen, it is one of the tragic ironies and anomalies of sacred history. The community of faith that God raises up to tell the world the truth about Himself succumbs to the infiltrating influence of a surrounding pagan culture and becomes as lost as the world they have been sent to save. Tell me, what is wrong with this picture? The chosen people, entrusted by God with a specific mission and a special message, embrace the corrupted value system, drag those gods from out there into their very spiritual bosom, and it only gets worse. In fact, the spiritual deterioration is so progressive and so pervasive that now there is nothing left but their final judgment. Chapter 9, mark it in your mind, because now here we're back to 9 where we need to be. Chapter 9 is about that final judgment. You already have your Bible open to 9. Let's read verse 1 again. Then he, God is still speaking to Ezekiel, then he cried in my hearing with a loud voice. Apocalyptic literature, let, just, let me just give you this clue. Whenever you run into loud voice, you know what that's saying? It's that wake up. I mean, what's up? What's up? What is happening here? When you hear a loud voice, that's what you're supposed to say. What's up? Loud voice means sit up, boy, and listen. When God speaks or an angel speaks with a loud voice. Then he cried in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Draw near, you executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And verse 2, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, that's in the temple, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And among them was a man clothed in linen with a riding case at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, look, it. you don't have to be a theologian or a rocket scientist to figure out. We, we got some angels going on here. We are living in 2000 A.D. Angels are everywhere in America today. Well, it's the same in apocalyptic literature. These are angels. But very, we can figure out the six. But one of the six, this is what's so intriguing. One of the six is clothed, it, it's noted, clothed in linen. Now, I want you to catch this. It is more than coincidental that this particular one is clothed in the very attire of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16.4 Whoever this is, he's clothed like the high priest on the Day of Atonement. You say, well, what's the Day of Atonement? 
I remind you, the Day of Atonement was that annual reminder that one day God would convene an investigative judgment before the end of all time, a judgment that would begin with His community of faith. Watch. Where are we now? Verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub. Well, what are the cherub beam? They are the golden angels over the holy ark. This is in the most holy place. The glory of God has been, the Shekinah glory has been in the inner sanctum, but now it's going, it's, God is preparing to leave. It's a heartbreaking series of chapters. If you read from 8 through 11, you see progressive leaving, God leaving His, his friends who are saying, we don't want you. The party's over. Adios, Señor. And now, verse 3, let's read it again. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. That's the temple. And the Lord called to the man, to the Day of Atonement man, who had the writing case at his side, and He said to him, verse 4, Go through the city, go through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Wow! This is apocalyptic judgment. And how does the judgment begin? It begins with the command. All right, move through that city. I want you to find everyone who's loyal to me. I want you to find every friend of mine. Find everybody who sighs and groans. What's that sighing and groaning? Groaning. Well, what is this? Oh, obviously, these are people, men, women, young adults, teenagers, maybe even boys and girls, who are after, as the Bible says, after God's own heart. What hurts him hurts them. What rejoices his soul rejoices their spirits. They are people now because of the fallen state of that community of faith who are on their knees begging God, please. Joel 2 describes them. They get between the porch and the altar and they cry out to God, Oh God, spare your heritage. Don't let us go down like it appears we are. People who sigh and groan. Who apparently move forward on their knees. And who capture the heart and soul of this one who is their Lord and God. And God calls out, and this, this, this is something, God calls out to the Day of Atonement man, hey, you, you, put an X on the foreheads of my faithful friends. Ladies and gentlemen, in the skit, exactly right. It was an X. You see, it's the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet called Tav. The Tav in the time of, of uh, Ezekiel, the Tav was written like an X. Scribes who wanted to put a little asterisk by their parchment, they put it out on the margin, a little X, Tav. If you want to sign a document, you just want to put your X there, you just put a Tav. God says, go, find my friends, and you put an X. You put an X right on their forehead. The foreheads of my faithful people. But He has more instruction. He's not through. And this is where, you know, it's a, for a weak soul, you'll get over it, but this is strong. Verse 5, to the others, the other five, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him, the day of atonement man, and kill. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Cut down old men and young men and young women and little children and women, but touch no one who has the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the house or in front of the temple. I'm telling you what, this is, this is somber stuff. This, my friends, is the day of judgment. It is the fact that irrevocable decisions and choices have already been made. And so the decree comes from God. Do you remember these words from Revelation? 
He that is unjust, let him be what? Unjust still. She that is filthy, let her be what? Filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. She that is holy, let her be holy still. Lock them in. Right now. Stop. God waits no longer. I mean, oh, folks, don't, don't get mad at God. Don't start wagging your finger at Him. What a meanie. <laughs> He's just saying, folks, I, I waited long enough. I gave you every chance in the world. I now will ratify the very personal choices of every member of the community of faith. You have already made the choices. I simply now... Skip, 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 skip. I am simply indicating the choices you have already made. Don't blame me for your choice. You had the freedom to choose. Mark it very well, my friends. God speaks these words. Begin. Begin at my sanctuary. You see, there are some people in Christianity today, even within our little community of faith, say, oh, that little concept of the investigative judgment, it's out of touch, it's out of time. It's simply wrong because God, does ne God never judges His people. Boy, you have never read the Scripture. That's your problem. Centuries later, Peter will come along. Take a look at this. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter will come along and say, I'm telling you, Ezekiel is absolutely right. 1 Peter 4, 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. It starts with the people of God's sanctuary. Let's go on. For if it begins with us, what will be for the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I'm telling you, it starts with his friends. It's an investigation. You say, oh, that's not right. God shouldn't have to know. God already knows. Yeah. But there are a whole lot of other people looking on and saying, I'm wondering. So God says, watch this. I'll put a little, I'll put a little, see? That's mine. See? See? Paul comes along and says, hey, Ezekiel is right. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what? has been done in the body, whether good or evil. That's all. That's all Christians. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. One line, the, this Lord will judge His people. If anybody comes to you and tells you, can't be true, this idea of a judgment before the return of Christ, you just look at them in the face and say, better start reading the book, because it is true. There will be an investigation. There was a time we said, don't use that word investigation, get rid of it. Call it pre-advent. Nope, it's time to bring it back. It is an investigation. There is an examination. Skip, skip, skip. Does that bother you? shouldn't. God is simply saying, I'm honoring your freedom, madam. You are free to choose. And you chose. Wow. It is inescapable, ladies and gentlemen, in both Testaments of Holy Scripture. Before the end of all things, there is an investigative judgment to determine what's up in the hearts of a people who publicly proclaim their allegiance to God. Well, let's just find out, God says, what's up. Go through the city. Put a mark on everyone who's loyal to me. Go through the campus. Go through that congregation. Go through the church. Go through the country. Go through the world. Find the ones who share my heart. I want you to find the ones who know my spirit. Find the ones who pray my will. And when you find them, you put an X on them. That's mine. They belong to me. They are mine. It's mine. And the ones who have an X on the forehead, 
The ones who have blood on the doorposts, pass over them. Isn't it more than coincidental that those two stories fit together? The Exodus, the blood on the doorposts, and Ezekiel. I mean, the same story. You remember the story of the Exodus, don't you? We all love Prince of Egypt turned Moses. Moses, on the last night of the final plague, he gathers a little community of faith. Hey, come here, guys. Come here, come here. I bring you word from God. Here's what's going to happen. Tonight there is going to be an investigative judgment. The angel of the Lord is going to come down. But we don't have to fear. We can pass through the judgment if we will paint the blood of the Lamb on our homes and on our doorposts. And when the angel of destruction sees the blood, he will pass over us. Wow. You can practically practically hear those words here in verse 5 of chapter 9. Pass through the city after the marking angel. Pass over. Hallelujah, ladies and gentlemen. God has made provision to get through the judgment for His friends. He's made full provision. Don't you ever wag your finger in God's face. He's made every provision that is divinely possible to make. You can be scot-free in the judgment if you have the blood on the doorpost. All right, put an X, he says, on the foreheads of my people, for they belong to me. Oh, let's wrap up the chapter. Verse 11. Then the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded me. The end. That's it. It's the end of that passage. But you know what? This pa- what was brought to life for us by the Impressions drama team? There's no question. Revelation chapter 7. And Ezekiel 9, those two visions go just like this, like hand in glove. The parallels are incontrovertible. And so let's close with Revelation 7. Let's just go back there and read the words. Just read them. The Apocalypse. Both Ezekiel and Revelation are are forms of apocalyptic literature. Only one got called Apocalypse. And the reason it got called Apocalypse is because the opening Greek word is Apocalypsis, which means the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's why it got stuck with the name, the Apocalypse. This is Revelation chapter 7. Let's just read the first three verses. After this, verse 1, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Powerfully uh, uh, symbolized for us this morning here on the platform holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, that's the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice. There it is again. I tell you what, I'm warning you, when you run into loud voice, sit up. What's up? Just take note. Something big is about to happen. We've got an angel now with a loud voice again, just like God. And with his loud voice, he calls to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, verse 3, Don't! Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. Ladies and gentlemen, the parallels are striking. They are stunning. Ezekiel 9 and Revelation 7 are bound together. What are the parallels? Oh, come on. In both visions, it is the eve of destruction. Isn't this true? It's on the eve. Both visions. Number two, the restraining word goes, word goes out. Hold it. Not yet, not yet, not yet. Whoa, 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 Hold it. Number three, you see it's not been determined in both visions who are loyal to God. There's a little investigation that must go. Who is loyal to me? Number four, both visions therefore give the command, go out and when you find my friends, put a mark. Put a mark. Cut a letav in Ezekiel 9. Call it a seal in Revelation 7. Same thing. Put a mark. Both visions, the mark always goes in the forehead because parallel number six, both visions. It must be an investigation before that judgment can be complete. 
Wow. Now here's the big question. Central to understanding all of this has got to be, oh, okay, well, but this tab, this, this, this X, this seal, whatever it is, what could it possibly mean for the experience of God's friends on earth in this generation? What does it mean? Ah, let, let, let's, let's, let's explore that in closing. I have here a wonderful little gizmo. Karen gave this to me, uh, I think a couple of Valentines ago. This, this is a seal. Have you seen these? These are seals. I mean, they're, they're wonderful. You know, you can put it up. You come up to a piece of paper. Uh, it's for the books, generally for your books. You get a new book. You go right into the first page. You push that down. You take it off. And I'm telling you, it's a library of Dwight K. Nelson, middle initials, I mean, in the center, DKN. You put it, you put it a few more places. In fact, you know what? You cannot get the seal out. You can erase it. You can, you can wash it. It won't go out. The only way, if you ever get a book of mine you don't want to remember it's mine, just rip the page. That's the only thing you can do. Just The page is gone. I can't remember where I got this book. I mean, that's what a seal is for. It's to say, hey, the book doesn't belong to you, boy. That book belongs to somebody else. DKN. Ooh. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you think about it. If, let's say, uh, and I'll tell you how this works. Let's just say that I get over to your house. Hallelujah. We're having Sabbath dinner. Yes. And while, while we're getting ready for dinner, in fact, you go into the kitchen because you want to check on a cottage cheese casserole. So while you're in checking on the casserole, I go into your library with my seal. i got a seal. And I go to your book. Choom, 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 choom. Wow! It works on old books, too. Look at that. Choom, choom, choom. Now, my friends, I, I can make two predictions. Prediction number one, I'll never get a dinner invitation to your house again. And prediction number two, my seal would be worthless. Do you know why? Because you can't put a seal on that which does not belong to you in the first place. It has to be yours. Because somebody come along and say, hey, hey, you don't put the seal on him. Ooh, don't put it on it. That's mine. Don't you put it on her. That's, hey, 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 mine. You can get your own. You see, the seal means you belong. Let's talk about this seal. In fact, when God puts an X, when He puts a top, when He puts a seal on a person's forehead, what is He saying by this seal? Let's put it up on the screen. Five functions of a seal. Number one, we just did it. Number one, ownership, right? You got a seal. That means you jot this down, those of you who are note takers. Number one, it's ownership. Let's put up number two. Number two is authenticity. Do you, do you, are you acquainted with notary publics? Notary publics? You know where they are? They're people. They're men and women who have credentials from the state and they have a little seal. If, if you sell me your car and we go and we agree on the price, we can go to a notary public and, the pub, uh, and he or she will listen carefully, look at the document, we'll both sign it, and then he will come along and go, and then scribble a signature. What does that seal mean? It means, hey, this is authentic. This is no fake, no counterfeit here. This is the real thing. When God comes along and He puts a seal on His friends, Authentic. In fact, that's why it goes, ladies and gentlemen, it goes on the forehead. He could have said, I'll put it on the ears. I'll put it on your chest. No, no. doesn't even say, I'll put it on your hands. Only the forehead. You know why? Because it is in the mind and intellect of his friends that the truth and character of God is authenticated. I love this 1902 definition of the seal. Let's go to 1902. The people of God are sealed in their foreheads. It is not any seal or mark that can be seen. No, no. But a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. 
That's a great definition for a university parish, by the way. Intellectually and spiritually, a settling into the truth. I was watching TV last Sunday, and I, I came across a, a, a worship service on television. And I'm telling you, I never, it was organized mayhem. I mean, there was clapping and shouting and yelling and screaming and whistling and cheering. And that was just the opening hymn. You could not believe. And I'm thinking to myself, and this is true, I remember thinking, oh God, thank you for truth that lifts us higher than mindless emotion. Thank you for being a God that prizes logic and invites intellectual as well as spiritual growth. I mean, that ought to turn a university parish on. Intellectual as well as spiritual. Not one or the other. Both and. Settling into the truth intellectually. That's why this university exists. To give a, a clarion intellectual defense. Intellectually and spiritually. Authentic. Authentic. Okay, there are five functions of a seal. Number one is ownership. Number two is authenticity. Let's go to number three. The third function of a seal, approval. Now, there used to be a magazine in the United States, and I found out from first service it's still around. Good housekeeping? Huh? Gen Xers do not read good housekeeping. I know that. But there, you know, it's been around for centuries. This particular magazine, Good Housekeeping, earned quite a reputation nationally for selecting the best products and the best merchandise available to the American consumer. And they said, when we find something that is really good, we give it what we call the Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval. That means we checked it out. Yep, that thing is UL listed. It's going to do just fine. Thank you. When God comes along and He puts His seal, when He puts that seal, He is saying, I approve. This is the seal, my good housekeeping seal of approval. She will stay with me for the rest of eternity. I tell you what, if you gave Him a thousand chances, He would never turn His back on me. I approve. That's my seal. Five functions of a seal. Number one is ownership. Number two is authenticity. Number three is approval. And let's go to number four. Number four is irreversibility. You see, when the President of the United States, William Jefferson Clinton, Clinton at this present moment, when the President signs an executive order, and he's able to do this without Congress or anybody saying anything, he can just sign it. He's done hundreds of them. When he puts his signature and affixes his presidential seal, that order is binding. Now, it may not be quite as binding as they used to say the laws of the Medes and the Persians. You remember the story of Daniel? Remember they said, we're going to get Daniel. And they, 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 Darius makes a law and he puts his signet right into that wax. He said, man, that's the law. And then they come and then he tries to get Daniel off the hook, you remember? And they say, oh, king, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Sealed. Irreversible. Now, with Congress and the courts, it's possible some things in the, in the system can be overturned. But when God affixes His divine seal upon the lives of His loyal friends. Get this. Once the seal goes on, it can never be erased. It can never be reversed. And for that reason, doesn't this make logical sense? For that reason, He waits until the end before putting the seal on just in case you change your mind and would rather not. He'll give you that freedom until the last moment and then the command goes out. Lock. Filthy, stay filthy. Holy, stay healthy. Now goes the mark. All right. 
Five functions of a seal. Number one is ownership. Number two is authenticity. Number three is approval. Number four is irreversibility. And finally, this is the one we must not forget. Number five, write it down, likeness. Oh, come on, ladies. I don't think many guys do this, but come on, ladies. You go to here to Victoria Place. You go to Hallmark. I know what you do. You buy these little wax and seal kits. Don't you? It has a little seal with it and it has wax and you can get the wax to soften. Yeah, have, you, have you not seen that? That's the wrong crowd. <laughs> you don't know these? You can get them at Hallmark. I mean, my wife has them. Come on. You put it on a love letter. You know the back of a letter? It used to go like this. You put it X to XO, XO, XO. You now you just put a little seal. You get this molten seal, and then you put your individualized little seal. You go, shh. By the way, you never put this on an electric bill. You never do it on a school bill. You know, put a little seal, love seal on the back. I mean, well, what they charge? You go, I'm not going to seal it. I'll leave the envelope open. hope it falls out. But when you put the little seal, it's your individualized. It's something from your heart. The ancient kings, they came up with these cylindrical seals. I saw a picture one. Yep, they put the likeness of the king on the cylinder and they would roll the cylinder across the wax. And when it rolled, it would leave the imprint of the likeness of the king for all to see. When the king of the universe affixes his seal to the foreheads of his loyal people and his faithful friends, it is the very likeness of his character that is affixed in those lives. 1895, I like this definition of the seal. Fits function number five. The seal of the living God will be placed upon those only who bear a likeness to Christ in character. God's end time friends become the impressionable wax upon which God seals His moral image and places it permanently on display before the universe. There's my picture. Look! The seal is there. Just like the King. Wow. Look at this. Desire of Ages. This is a dynamite line. You can write this down in the amount of time it's on the screen. Desire of Ages, page 827. Christ is sitting for His portrait in every disciple. Isn't that choice? Where you go to school, when you walk into that classroom, Jesus says, hold still, because I'm painting my picture by the way you handle that class. Where you go to work, when you walk into that office, He said, hold still, because I'm painting the picture of my character where you work, where you play. He says, stop, stop. Let, let them see my picture. Christ is sitting for His portrait in every disciple. And when the portrait is through, the last stroke goes on, seal it. That's the sealing. The portrait is now complete. Well, let's put them up so that you can get them. One last time. The seal of the living God, what does it represent? Number one, it represents God's ownership. Number two, oh, it represents authenticity. Number three, it's God's approval. Number four, it's irreversibility. And finally, number five, likeness. This will be like me. Now, I know what you're saying. Hold, hold, hold it. Come on, Dwight. What in the world does this ceiling have to do with our series, The Second Coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, because you asked. One last moment. I want to put these two verses on the screen. I'm telling you, it has everything to do. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. Just two lines from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him, in Christ you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in Him, in Jesus. Isn't this beautiful? You were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Isn't that something? Look, one more. Chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. 
Marked with a seal. I love it. Marked by the Holy Spirit. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the mission of the Holy Spirit. When a man comes to Christ, when a woman accepts Jesus, the mighty third person of the Godhead, we're talking... He's our forever friend, right? We shared that last week. Our forever friend. By the way, if you weren't here last week, get a copy of this study. Just cross the street tomorrow at the ABC. There's an 800 number at the end of this television program. Call that number. Get a copy of this. The, the, our forever friend. When a man comes to Christ, when a woman accepts Jesus, the Holy Spirit immediately begins the process of growing and sealing that new relationship in Christ. In fact, there's an old, old word used of this sealing process that begins in the New Testament and the word is called, let's put it on the screen, sanctification. It's the journey and work of a lifetime. He starts sealing, but he's not through yet. Oh, there's more wax. Get more and more and more. Be like Jesus, this my song, in the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus, all day long, how's it end? I would be like Jesus. A journey towards being like Jesus. The imprint of His character. Although, you know, I read a piece this last week from a publication that doesn't come from too far from here. Now, I may have gotten it all wrong and I apologize if that's the case, but... It seemed to me from that piece that maybe you really can't be like Jesus all day long. In fact, I almost got the impression that the article was suggesting I shouldn't even try to be. I'm sure that, that I don't have this straight, but you know, using Peter as proof, the piece seemed to suggest that we can no more expect to keep our eyes on Jesus day in and day out than Peter did that night when he briefly walked on water. In fact... You know, maybe you shouldn't even try. I mean, come on. We will only reflect His face fleetingly. Once in a while you'll feel the Spirit, but I don't know. I, I, I've read that and I, I'm sure I, I, I haven't mixed up. But for the, for, for the life of me, is, is the failure of Peter out there on those midnight waters, is that failure normative and natural? Is it the way for Christians to live. The logic that a fish can't live out of water, and therefore a Christian shouldn't trouble themselves about living a life contrary to our basic human nature. I'd wrestle with that. Maybe it's, it would be like telling a toddler that since he is now having such a hard time staying on his feet, that is proof enough that it was never intended for him to walk very consistently. And so maybe he should just simply give up and embrace his natural toddler status and be happy with these fleeting, punctuated, rare moments of walking. I'm sure the article wasn't saying embrace the status quo and find refuge in your basic human nature. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it is our basic human nature that the Holy Spirit immediately begins to change and transform as we journey with Jesus. We ought never to be content. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe the... The logic is we ought not to go to the Peter before the cross. Maybe we ought to go to the Peter after the cross. Maybe by looking at the Peter of Pentecost, there is the assurance that I can become what Christ has called me to be. I mean, here's this Peter who now is filled with the Holy Spirit and who obviously has learned the truth that if you keep your eyes on Jesus, He will give you faith. He will give you power and hope and courage to buck the world and to resist your own fallen nature. You're not victimized by that nature. 
You're not tied to it. In fact, I don't know, maybe this is the newest Peter principle up here in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter's writing, His divine power has given us everything needed for life. And what's the next word? To be like God. God didn't say, I want you to be like me and then good luck, I hope you make it. He said, I'm going to give you everything you need so that you can become Christ-like, so that you can become godly. Through How do we get the godliness? Through the knowledge of Him. Knowledge of whom? Of Christ, who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Thus He has given us through these things His precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust. You're not a prisoner to lust. You don't have to be stuck with that for the rest of your life. You can be set free, sir. Madam, you can be set free. Even tonight you're free. And you may become a participant of the divine nature. My friends, that is the mission of the Holy Spirit to pour into our hearts and minds and spirits and lives the omnipotent power of God so that the divine nature can overcome the fallen human nature in all of us. You can overcome in Christ. In fact, you must overcome in Christ. But you cannot, you must not wait until the second coming of the Holy Spirit that final Pentecostal outpouring will come too late for those of us who are saying, one day I'll prepare, one day I'll get ready. My friend, there is no one day but today. Today and today, behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day to start preparing. I, I tell you the truth. The sealing will come as a final ratification of what the Spirit must be doing in our lives right now, imprinting, impressing upon our waxen hearts the very image and character of Jesus so that when He's through, look what I did. And by the way, it's Jesus saying, look what I did. It's not us saying, look what we did. Christ says, look what I did. You thought they were worthless trash. I made them princes and princesses of this kingdom. Don't you ever downgrade what Christ can do. Don't you ever say that the Spirit doesn't have enough omnipotence to free you from what holds you shackled today. He can set you free. All He needs is your permission. All He needs is your word. Come on, Jesus! Now, He may need you to go into that closet and you go ahead and you do the actual extrication. You throw it out. He may need you to do that. He'll do the rest. I'm telling you, He is able. Now unto Him who is able to keep us from falling. Don't you let anybody tell you that you are captive to your fallen nature. You are not captive. You're free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. What's the mission of the Spirit? Closer and closer. And deeper and deeper. And nearer and nearer. That's the whole, the whole mission of the Holy Spirit. To bring us nearer and nearer and nearer to Jesus. <sighs> Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. I am yours. I tell you what, my friends. I believe with all my heart the day is not far hence. When these four angels are going to let go, finally, they're going to let go. The night cometh when that angel of destruction is going to pass over. <laughs> if ever there were a time for the blood of the Lamb to be on our doorpost, it surely is now. If ever there were a time for the seal of God to be upon our intellect and our, our minds, it surely is now. If ever there were a time for the mighty Spirit of Christ 
to be in our hearts, it surely is now. Then why don't we ask? Why don't we ask? And ask. And ask. And we shall receive. Because He's that good. Don't you believe it? He is that good. I want to end with a prayer. Let's, Let's pray the prayer together. Oh, this is beautiful. Hymn 301. Nearer, still nearer, close to Your heart. Draw me, O Savior, so precious You are. Let's pray it. Let's go to our feet. We'll pray our hearts out with this. Let's go into a new week knowing that our forever friend, our power and our hope and our strength goes with us. O Spirit, we pray that prayer to You. Give us but Jesus, our Lord, crucified. And please, nearer and nearer and nearer. And now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of His glory with rejoicing, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.